You know, the uh, computer and working with computers and computer programs and storing information has changed dramatically over just the few years, hasn't it? Um, who remembers actively using those things right there? Raise your hand. Yeah, I figured many of you. Yeah, the three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk. That was how you uh, accessed information and stored information and had programs for your computer. I mean, that right there, that's, that's Microsoft Word. And it took that many disks to install Microsoft Word. Um, the three-and-a-half floppy disk, though, was revolutionary considering that before it was the five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy. I've used that too. Yep, yep. Tandy 1000 and, and before. Um, and so the, the memory that those things could store, it, it was just hardly anything compared to what we have today. But the three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk, it could store a whopping 1.44 millibytes or megabytes, megabytes. And, and you know how many megabytes are in one gigabyte? Matthew knows, so don't tell. Don't, he, he doesn't count. He'll tell the answer right away. Anybody? Anybody? A thousand. Thank you. See? See? This is what I, I have to work with, you know. 1,024 in one gigabyte. And now we have this. We have these. The smartphone. And, I mean, what, what the minimum amount of, of the, the smartphone that you have in terms of gigabytes is just crazy, crazy high compared to what anybody had access to years ago uh, with these floppy disks. And, I mean, these things can store so much information, but every now and then, no matter how many gigs you have on your iPhone or your Android, why you would have an Android, I don't know, but uh, on, your, on your iPhone, your smart device, sometimes this really annoying message pops up. Uh, no matter how many gigs you have, how many times do you see that? Uh, some of us more than others, probably. iPhone storage full. You have no more storage. It's time to make some decisions. What are you going to delete? So you have a decision to make. Am I going to get rid of this photo or, or this music file or this app? And uh, there's also a wonderful thing that's even gone beyond the device itself, the cloud. So you store things in the cloud now. And you can get virtually unlimited storage space in the cloud for a premium price. Um, but it's just it's constantly, constantly expanding. And if you don't have unlimited storage in the cloud, another annoying message will pop up saying your cloud storage is approaching its limit. So there's, there's limits and there's, there's capacities on all these different things, even though we continue to make advancements. Here's my question with all of that. This is not just a, a technology lecture, okay? How much would you say is too much to forgive? How much is too much to forgive? How far is too far over the line for you to forgive? We know we're not supposed to have limits. We all know that. And, and the, the Sunday school answer is, oh, there's no limit. Uh, nothing is too much to forgive because we're supposed to forgive constantly and, and unconditionally. We know that as Christians, right? I mean, we've heard that all through our Christian walk. We believe that. We agree with that intellectually and spiritually. But humanly, talking human nature in our flesh, it is incredibly easy to put limits 
on our forgiveness. Don't you think? And I, if we were really, really honest and, and just blunt, I think we would all be able to come up with a scenario, whether real or imagined, something we'd already experienced or, or maybe not, but could imagine how we'd feel if we did, and we would all have to say, yep, if I was just 100% honest, I would have to say this thing or, or that, that situation or someone doing this to me or somebody I love, that would be just too much. I could not forgive that. Again, humanly speaking, we're not talking about uh, the power of the Spirit enabling you uh, at this point. I'm saying just in your, your, your base self, I think that there's probably a limit that it, just about all of us would say, yeah, that, that would be too much to forgive. There's a capacity reached. Aren't you glad then that God doesn't have a forgiveness capacity? That He doesn't have a storage limit when it comes to forgiveness? Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Uh, I sure am because of how much I fail Him regularly and and epically. Uh, If he had a storage limit or there was a capacity that God had in terms of forgiveness, we would all be truly in trouble and hopeless. But God doesn't have a forgiveness capacity or a storage limit on his forgiveness. Someone that experienced that in a really powerful way was the Apostle Peter. Peter's one of my favorite characters in all of the Bible. Uh, I identify with him so much. So often, you know, I, I will speak before I think, and, and I'll rush in only to find that I shouldn't have, and I think you can identify with that too. Peter was just, was just so real in just about everything he did, and uh, despite his failings and despite his weakness, the Lord Jesus Christ used him so powerfully and so instrumentally in establishing the church. But Peter experienced this fact in a very powerful way, that God does not have a forgiveness capacity or a storage limit. And so what happened with Peter's life, uh, we're going to, to talk about just one, one scene, one, one little incident, but it was an amazing, amazing uh, situation, and it certainly it was life-changing in the life of Peter. John 21 is where we're going to start off together today. John 21, verses 15 through 17 is what we're going to look at. John 21, 15 through 17. And what's going on around this scene that we're going to look at together? Um, Jesus has resurrected, and he actually appeared to the disciples three times. This scene that we're going to look at was the third time. And before this, and even really before he went to the cross, he said, I am going to die, I'm going to go to the cross, but I will rise again. Once I do, you go ahead and wait for me in Galilee. I'll meet you there. And then he repeated that after he did rise and appear to them the other times. He said, go ahead and wait for me. I'm going to come to you in Galilee. Um, You go on ahead. So they did that. And Peter and the other disciples are there. And Peter says, you know, I think I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go fishing. And, and so they, they come with them. And remember, Peter, before he was a disciple, he was a fisherman by trade. He and his brother, and James and John as well, they had fishing businesses. That's what they did. And they were called away from their nets when Jesus called them. There was a miraculous catch of fish. And he said, I'm going to now make you fishers of men. And so here, three years later, they're waiting for Jesus to appear uh, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. He's not there. And so Peter says, 
I'm going to go fishing. I might as well. So he goes fishing. The others go with him. They end up fishing all night long. They don't catch anything. And then all of a sudden they hear a voice. You there on the water, children, have you caught any fish? And the answer is no, we haven't caught anything. Throw your nets on the other side of the boat. You'll have a catch. I guarantee it. And all of a sudden light bulbs are starting to come on. Hmm. Where have we heard this before? Where have we seen this before? So they, they do this and they haul in this huge catch of fish. We actually have the, the number recorded in Scripture to show just how detailed this was, how, how uh, eyewitness this account was by John who was there. 153 fish they hauled in. 153 fish. And John recognizes this isn't just some stranger on the shore. This, just like the first time three years ago, this is the Lord. And he says that. It's the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat and just starts running, you know, wading through to get to Jesus. That's what happened uh, surrounding this scene. And, and Jesus tells them, go ahead and bring in your catch. Come and have breakfast. And he already had fish on a charcoal fire waiting for them, ready to eat. So they, they come, and they sit, and they eat with Jesus. And the, the text tells us no one asked who this was because they all knew this was the Lord Jesus. So that's all the background. Verse 15 is where we're going to pick up, and it says this. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, literally Jonas, do you love me more than these. And the word Jesus used for love there when he said, do you love me, is the word agape. And it's, it's that unconditional, supernatural, God-like love. It's the kind of love that only God has in himself naturally. He's the source of this kind of love. It's self-sacrificing, going to the limit and beyond it, truly unconditional, unsurpassed love. No limits, no conditions. And he said, do you love me in that way, Peter? Can you say that you love me with an agape love, Peter? Do you love me more than these? And just about guaranteed, the these he's saying here, the these that Jesus is asking, does Simon Peter love him more than these, is most likely the, the, the other disciples, the fellow disciples that Peter is there with. And the reason he's framing the question this way, and the reason I think that it makes the most sense that he's talking about the disciples when he says more than these, is because in Matthew 26, Jesus predicted, right before he went to the cross in the Last Supper, the upper room, Jesus predicted that all of his disciples were going to desert him. They were going to leave him out of fear of being arrested because of being identified with them. They would be arrested along with them. And so out of fear, they would scatter and they would disperse and they would desert him, which was actually a fulfillment of prophecy, that that's exactly what would happen. But in response to that, hearing that, Peter, gotta love Peter, always quick to speak. Peter told Jesus, even if everyone else, speaking of the rest of the disciples, you know, looking around, hey, Jesus, I, I hear what you're saying, but let me tell you something. Even if all these jokers, they end up leaving you, 
I will never leave you. I am your man. Remember, I'm the rock. You changed my name. Remember that? I'm the rock. And I'll be your rock, Jesus. I'm not going to desert you. I will never desert or deny you. Beating of the chest, right? And Jesus responded by accurately predicting that before the rooster crows, Peter, you will completely deny me. Three times you'll deny me. That's exactly what happened. We know that story too, most likely. It's exactly what happened. And Peter, unfortunately, became a living example of the truth of Proverbs 16, which says, Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And you probably have experienced that at some point in your life too. But Peter really did. I mean, here's Peter with all the gusto of his, of his prideful heart. He says, well, these guys may desert you. You might be right about them, but I never will. And sure enough, that's what happened. And so jumping back to John 21 in this conversation with Jesus and Peter, I really see when he says, do you love me with that agape love, the kind of love that you thought you had when you said you'd never leave me, do you still feel like you have that? Can you still say you love me to that level, Peter? Do you, can you say you love me more than these now? What do you think? Now that that's happened, what, what would be your answer now? So, back in John 21, at the end of verse 15, here's what Peter said to that very painful question. Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Here's the thing, though. The word that Peter used for love in response to Jesus asking if he loved him with agape love was not agape. The word that Peter used here in response saying, yes, I do love you, was the word phileo. Phileo. It was the brotherly type love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It was an affection, but it was a, it was a, a strong friendship. It wasn't the ultimate level of love, the ultimate degree of love. It wasn't self-sacrificing, unconditional, God-powered love. Peter said, you know, I I do love you. I have a strong affection for you. It's really what he was saying, literally, by using that word. Jesus said, feed my lambs. That's what he said in response. Feed my lambs, he told him. That's literally be grazing, be nourishing and providing for my little baby lambs. Okay, Peter, if you, if you love me, even to the level that you're saying you have that, that strong affection, if that's, if that's how you can answer me, okay, and here's what I want you to do with that. I want you to take that strong affection you have for me, and I want you to channel it toward the weaker brothers and sisters. I want you to to take responsibility of providing nourishment for the weak ones. The weak ones. My little baby lambs. Verse 16. A second time, he, Jesus, asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it's the same word that he he started with, agape. He's saying, okay, uh, Peter, I I, I just want to be sure here, and I want you to be sure Have you learned humility yet? Have you learned humility yet? Do you agape me? Do you love me with an agape love? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I phileo you. You know that I love you with that that strong affection. But I 
just can't get to that highest level. Uh, I've proven to myself that I'm not there yet. Here's what Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. That's literally discipline my sheep. Tend them and and come alongside and, and discipline them and lead them. Lead my sheep. That's the older lambs. Why shepherd the older lambs so that the younger lambs would then have someone to follow? He's saying, uh, that's good enough for me, Peter. I, I'll take that. I'll accept that. And I will, I will continue to use you. I, I'm saying these things because I still have a plan to use you, Peter. Yes, you failed. Yes, you, you did deny me like I told you. But, but that's not the end. I still want to use you. And here's how I want to use you, Peter. I want to, want to take the love you have for me, even though it's not perfect, even though it's full of weakness. I want to use the love you have for me. And I want to take that and have you give that to other people. And I want you to lead others that follow me as well. I want you to be a shepherd for the rest of my followers. Provide for them. Give them the spiritual nourishment that they need. Help them to grow. Disciple them. Discipline them when is necessary and lead them. Verse 17, he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time, Jesus comes down to the level of love that Peter has been saying this whole time. So the first two times it was agape, Now he's using the same word that Peter responded with. He's saying, Simon, can you really say, with all sincerity, can you truly say that you at least love me that much? That love that you've been saying you have for me, that phileo love, is that true? Can you really say that, Peter? Peter was grieved, the text says, that he asked him the third time, which would also no doubt be a reminder of the three times denying but also, no doubt, he was grieved that, he, that Jesus had to come down to that level or, or that, you know, that, that Peter wasn't already up to that level of agape, that, that Jesus recognized that and, and lowered the bar, so to speak. So he was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? There's that, that phileo word. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo you. I really do, and you know that. You know everything. And what Peter is recognizing here is, you know, before I, I was so arrogant, I dared to think that I knew more than you. I dared to think that you had it wrong, that I wouldn't leave you, that I wouldn't deny you. Even though you told me that I would, I dared to think you were wrong. Now, Jesus, I know, I've learned You know everything. You know every part of me. You know every aspect of my being. You see farther than anybody else. You know me better than I know myself. You know my strengths. You know all my weaknesses. Jesus, I'm convinced now. You know everything. And so you know, you know that I don't love you the way you deserve, but you know I still love you to the point, to the the level that I, that I'm capable of. I love you as much as I can. You know that. And Jesus responded, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. See, thankfully, Peter's story didn't end with his denial. It didn't end with his denial. And he was able to learn a couple really important truths. 
And they're, they're important truths that we need to learn as well and that we can learn. Um, Peter definitely was able to learn them here in this moment and, and beyond. Uh, no doubt this carried him forward the rest of his life. And here's the first Here's the first truth that Peter learned just with this interaction. He learned that Jesus came to forgive the unforgivable. Jesus came to forgive the unforgivable. By human standards, by Peter's own standard, his denying Jesus was truly unforgivable. I mean, don't you think that it was? Wouldn't you feel like it would have been? I mean, if you were Peter... And after everything you had seen Jesus do, after everything you had heard Him say, after all the love that you had felt personally and seen demonstrated, after all the the belief that you had that this was finally the Messiah, you had said as much. You said, I don't know, and I don't really care whatever all these other people say about you and who they say you are. Remember Jesus asked who do people say I am? And there were answers. And he, he then looked at the disciples and he said, who do you say I am? And Peter once again spoke up, this time rightly, and he said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the promised one. You're the Son of the living God. You're God in the flesh. And Jesus said, yes. And blessed are you, Peter, because my Father in heaven has given you that revelation. So after all of that, to then in the moment that mattered most, turn your back on that one. Deny that you ever even knew Him, only to save your skin. Certainly by human standards, and and Peter would have felt this way, unforgivable. Absolutely unforgivable. He ran away from that denial weeping, and it seems if you read between the lines of the account of of the uh, last moments of Jesus' life and even His resurrection, you can read between the lines and come away with a picture of a totally defeated Peter. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, He said, go and tell my brothers that I have risen, as I, as I said, and tell Peter. Because Peter was already in this kind of self-imposed exile. He had already stepped away from the group. Like, I, I can't even be a disciple anymore. I mean, you, you know what I did? I denied the Savior. But what Peter saw in this beautiful interaction with the risen Lord, his Savior, was that Jesus came to forgive the unforgivable. You notice in the text, Jesus didn't say, Peter, are you sorry? Are you really, really sorry, Peter, that you denied me? I mean, I need to hear that, Peter. I need to hear that you're sorry. He didn't ask that. He knew Peter was brokenhearted. He knew Peter was sorrowful. He knew that Peter did love him as much as he could in his weak humanity. He knew that. And that was enough. He knew that Peter had a broken and contrite heart. He knew that Peter truly was repentant. Now he knew what Peter needed was to be restored. He needed to be restored. He needed to be reconciled. He needed to know that his Lord, his Savior, his friend, did indeed forgive him and still had plans for him. That's what Peter needed in this moment. And let's, let's bring it close to home. 
Jesus still forgives the unforgivable every single day. He forgives and redeems the lost in all their rebellion, and He forgives the found, you and me who are in Christ. When we sadly, tragically still fail Him again and again and again. I mean, you failed your Savior in some way, most likely, already today. And so did I, most likely. And we will again and again before the day is out. And tomorrow it will be the same. We'll find some way to fail our Savior. That's what it is to still be in this human flesh. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't mean it's a good thing. Doesn't mean we should just dismiss it and say, oh, well, that's, that's okay. That's just the way we are. That's just me. And, and I know I can be forgiven, so what's the big deal? That's not it at all. Paul had something to say about that in Romans. He said, oh, should we just keep sinning because we know that grace is going to abound? He said, no, absolutely not. God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin in Christ continue to live in it? It doesn't mean just go out and embrace your sinful nature. Everything's okay. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I am saying, though, that Jesus is a great Savior no matter how great a sinner we are. And that Jesus still forgives the unforgivable every single day. So take heart, Christian. Take heart in that. That you, you do let down your Savior and so do I, but He doesn't let go of us when we do. He doesn't let go of us. And Peter saw that in an amazing way, a powerful way. That though what he did was unforgivable, though he by anyone else's standard would be an unforgivable person, Jesus came exactly for that. And here's the second thing that he learned in this interaction. You can't have restoration without forgiveness. You can't have restoration without forgiveness. If Peter had not been truly, genuinely repentant of his sin of denying his Lord, truly brokenhearted. And if Jesus hadn't already forgiven him, then you would not have seen the restoration take place that we just read about. Because each of those questions that Jesus asked, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, that wasn't just to hit Peter over the head and make him feel bad. That was him asking Peter to say what Peter needed to hear himself say. He needed to know that he did still love Jesus, and he needed to know that Jesus knew that as well. And that's why he followed up. Each question was followed up with a command, go out and, and, go out and serve me. Go out and, and feed and take care of my little lambs. Go out and lead and disciple and, and mentor my older sheep and, and then feed them too. Peter, go out and be used by me to build this church that I said earlier I would build my church on the truth about me that you realized and confessed. I still have plans for you. And he would not have restored Peter if he had not already forgiven Peter. And he would not have forgiven Peter if Peter wasn't truly repentant. You see that progression? That, that's all there. Even though it's not spelled out in, in actual words, it's all the reality of what was going on here. You can't have restoration without forgiveness. And I think the reason that so many relationships remain ruined is because that first part is left out. I think a lot of the times we try to have restoration in our relationships when forgiveness has never been either asked for or given. And 
And we're never going to be able to move forward in any relationship with God and us or with us and other people without restoration, without reconciliation. And that's not going to ever take place without forgiveness. Forgiveness is absolutely vital. It's crucial. You'll never be able to be restored without it. So here's a really practical question. Is there someone that has wronged you and and they are genuinely sorry? They're genuinely repentant? But you've never fully forgiven them. Is there anybody in your life like that? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. God knows. You know. Maybe it's time to ask Him not to do anything else to those people, not to withhold favor or blessing from those people, not for them to learn their lesson, Maybe it's time, if that's true, if you have somebody in your life like that, maybe it's time for you to ask God to give you the power to forgive them, finally and fully. And then you'll see restoration take place. Maybe that's, maybe that's what you need to do. I, I don't know. Again, God knows. But restoration is so key, and you can't have restoration without forgiveness. You just can't. It will never happen. Well, those are the important things that I mean, Peter learned a whole lot more, but those are the the two key things that I think Peter came away with from this interaction. And the good news, the really good news for us, is that Peter's experience wasn't limited to him. Peter's experience wasn't limited to him. We can experience the same undeserved new forgiveness and restoration every single day. The God of new forgiveness that Peter saw in Jesus, that's the same God that we can know and, and relate to and experience the same thing from every single day. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess, and that's agree with God about our sin and acknowledge our responsibility in it, take ownership of it, and, and acknowledge our need for forgiveness, that's what's wrapped up in that word confess. Agree with God about our sin acknowledge the responsibility we have in our sin and our need for forgiveness of it. The promise here is, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, even though they are, by all other standards, unforgivable. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a constant promise. It's not a one-time thing. It's a constant and continual promise. Verse 8 is equally as important, though, uh, of that passage. It says, if we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. So you have to acknowledge, yes, I, I have blown it here. I have failed. I have sinned. I need forgiveness for that sin. And if we do that, the promise is that He, God, is faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Something about that forgiveness, though, that we need to make sure we remember. Something about the ability we have to be forgiven, we need to keep in mind, and that's this. God's forgiveness is free. It's free to us. It's free to you and me. God's forgiveness is free, but it wasn't cheap. It was not cheap. 
the grace and the mercy that we are able to receive and have from our God, from our Savior. It was the complete opposite of cheap. It's not cheap grace that we have. It's not cheap mercy that we're able to receive. Here's what I mean. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption, reconciliation, restoration, being brought back in right fellowship and relationship with God. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. All that is unforgivable in us we have forgiveness for, but it was by means of the blood of our Savior. Here's the last part. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And it was all lavished on us by and through His blood. So what it means is this. The cost for our forgiveness, for for your forgiveness that you constantly need, for my forgiveness that I'm constantly in need of, for Peter's forgiveness and all the others, the Apostle Paul being forgiven for being a, a persecutor of the church and then made its greatest champion and its greatest the greatest mouthpiece of the gospel all of that from the beginning from Adam and Eve all the way through to the end of time the cost for our forgiveness was the cross that was the cost for our forgiveness you stand if you're in Christ you stand forgiven you stand cleansed you stand made new but don't ever forget that what was free to you cost your savior everything to give you the cost for our forgiveness was the cross and Jesus paid it completely and eternally and he did it to give us everything that we could never deserve we could never deserve his favor His grace, His mercy, His acceptance, His love. We would never be worthy to be used by this Savior as His representatives, as His ambassadors. He gave us everything we could never deserve, and He didn't give us everything that we do deserve. And it was all by means of the cross. So, with all that in mind, the question to ask is, what should I do? What should I do with all that? What should be my response? Hearing this and seeing this and knowing that what Peter experienced, being forgiven of the unforgivable, being restored the way he was, that's true for me too. And look at what it cost my Savior to do that. What should I do with that? What should my response be? Here's what it should be. 2 Corinthians 5.15 He, Jesus, died for everyone so that those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. That's the first response. Secondly, Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the first response needs to be that we live for Him, the One who gave His life to give us forgiveness. We live for Him, not for ourselves. But the second response is just as important, that we, we are kind to one another, we are tenderhearted, and that we freely forgive one another just as God in His mercy and grace freely forgave us at the expense of Christ. 
And, and in terms of forgiveness, come on, we all want to be forgiven, don't we? We all want that. We all want to be forgiven when that's needed. And we love knowing we have been. I mean, ah, it just feels so good, so releasing, so freeing to know, wow, I, I really failed, I really blew it, I really messed up, but I have been forgiven. Wow, I'm so glad for that. I mean, we love knowing we're forgiven when we're forgiven, right? We want to be forgiven. And we hold it over someone's head if they don't forgive us. <laughs> That's what we do. And so we're quick to agree with and recite the part in the Lord's Prayer about the Father forgiving our debts, right? Father, forgive us our debts. We're, we're really quick to accept that. We're really quick to recite that. But sometimes, a lot of times, we can be quick to forget or to simply ignore the second part of that as we forgive our debtors. We rush past that. I, uh, I saw a, a coffee mug that is, was meant to be funny. I, I don't think it's funny at all. I think it's tragic. And unfortunately, it's how so many people operate. Even, quote, Christians operate this way. On the coffee mug, it said, to err is human, to forgive is too much to ask. And that's, that's the philosophy of a lot of people. That's a human philosophy. But it has no place in the Christian mind or the Christian heart. See, what it all comes down to is this. Love for Jesus should be our motivation in living for Him and forgiving others. That's our motivation. It's all about love. Jesus didn't say, Peter, are you sorry? Are you sorry? Are you sorry? He said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And when the answer was yes, as much as Peter could give it, it was, okay, good, go out and use that. Go out, live for me, serve me, help others. Love others with that love. As I've forgiven you, Peter, I mean, again, between the lines, as I've forgiven you, Peter, you go and you forgive other people and you teach them how to forgive and you come alongside them. Love for Jesus should be our motivation in living for Him and forgiving others. And so I, I, leave, you with, I leave you with this, this thought. What do you need to confess and repent of so Jesus can forgive and restore you? What do you personally need to confess and repent of so that Jesus can forgive and restore you like he did Peter? Second question, what might you need to forgive someone of or ask forgiveness for so restoration can happen? What do you need to forgive someone of or ask forgiveness for so restoration can happen? need to be thinking about those thoughts, asking those questions, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal the answers to you. That's what we need. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. We're going to remember what Jesus did for us, just like we talked about here in this message, that the forgiveness that we have was not cheap. It was free to us because it cost Him everything. We're going to remember that. We're going to focus on that for a few minutes together, and we're going to praise Him for that. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how powerful it is. I thank you for how relevant it is. I thank you for preserving in it conversations and interactions 
like this one with Peter and Jesus. We can all at some point and in some way identify with Peter, and we are all in need of forgiveness like he was. So thank you for showing to us the the fact that you are the God of new forgiveness. That even though we might commit what would be considered in, in all rights unforgivable and be unforgivable people, that you go beyond that and you forgive the unforgivable and that you sent your Son to make that possible. Thank you for forgiveness that we have in Christ and only in Christ. Thank you for making reconciliation and restoration possible. And thank you for doing it at the expense of your Son. Thank you for making it free to us because we can never earn it. And you made it free to us by placing the cost on your Son and paying that completely in and through Him and His cross. We thank you for that. We ask that we would do by the power of your Spirit what Paul said should be our response in 2 Corinthians 5.15, that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him, for Your Son, who gave His life for us. And help us then by Your Spirit's power also to go out and forgive others the way we have been forgiven, remembering that it all happened at the cross. We thank You for that, and we want to honor that now together. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.